morning. We have a saying that all of you have heard uh, that goes like this, blood is thicker than water. And it's simply meant to convey, even though it's been around for a long time, that a blood relationship like kinship with another person is more compelling and more binding and stronger than a merely legal relationship that is signed with water or ink on a, on a piece of paper. And oftentimes that saying, blood is thicker than water, is used in sort of negative contexts, like um, you might see a nasty divorce within a family, the, the husband and the wife separate, and, and it may be obvious to everyone that one party among the two is very much at fault in this and has done something very uh, bad towards their partner, but you will watch the families line up on either side supporting their family member. That seems to be a natural thing to do. Everyone knows that she's in the wrong, let's say, but, but her, her sister thinks she was my sister from the day I was born, and I grew up with her in the same family, and I've only known him for a few years, and if I have to give up one of the relationships, I know which one it will be. And sometimes this idea, blood is thicker than water, is a sort of a deep political reality that ties of uh, clans and ethnicity and race and religion are so powerful. There are places in the world where this is lived out in the Balkans and in the Middle East where people can, can undergo the best efforts to bring about some kind of peace and agreement between the, the different parties, but the ethnic hatred is so deep inside that those agreements don't mean very much because blood is thicker than water. And I suppose we don't use it positively usually, but it is uh, positive in the sense that uh, family relationships are the basis on which people sacrifice themselves tremendously. If there's a, a sick child, the parents and the siblings will give up Everything, you know, their, their own body parts if necessary, their wealth, their jobs, whatever, in order to, to make possible the saving of the child's life. And that's because ties of blood relationship are very powerful for us. And it might surprise you that it's in that context that Jesus said that that was going to be superseded now. That, that he doesn't deny that that's true, that blood is thicker than water, that it's a very powerful, but that there's going to be something that is even more compelling and even stronger than kinship relationships. And that's what this passage is about. Jesus is meeting with the disciples. Shortly before this, he had gone up on a mountain, spent the night in prayer, and called to himself 12 among all his followers and appointed them as the apostles, Apostle means one who was sent. They were, going, they were going to be those who would be sent out. The word missionary today is uh, essentially the same as the word apostle. That they would go out and they would plant the, the first churches after their time with Jesus. We're told that after that, a few days, he was sitting in his house in Capernaum, his house meaning Peter's home, which was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. And every time it says that they went home or they went to the house or his house, that's where it is. He's sitting in his house and a crowd of people around there listening to him, teaching the word of God. And his mother and his brothers come into the courtyard, apparently, and they ask to see Jesus. And someone makes their way into the house to Jesus through the crowd and, and says that his mother and brothers are there to meet with him. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? 
And then he looks around him at the people who are sitting listening to him, uh, teaching the word of God. And he says, here are my my mother and my brothers and my sister. Whoever does the will of God, he or she is my mother or brother or sister. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he came to bring people into relationship that would be deeper and more compelling and stronger and more important than either blood relationship or legal kinds of relationships that we might make. Their relationship is not going to be characterized by a common ethnic heritage or a a common upbringing or culture or experience. He says it's a tie that's going to be found only among those who do the will of God. Now, what we're talking about this morning is based on this verse in First, Second Corinthians. The Apostle Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That when a person comes to faith in Christ, we become a new person in the sight of God. It doesn't mean that Everything about us in the past is wiped out, but it means that we become a new person before God and we become a part of his new creation, which he in the end of the Bible will present. And one aspect of what it means to be a new creation is that we become members of a new family. Now, I suppose that few people, when they come to faith in Christ, whether it's when they're five or when they're 50, few people understand what it means to be a part of a new family. Um, But then if you think about it, when a baby is born into a home, the baby has no consciousness that she is part of a family. That's something that grows as the person grows and they learn about relationships and how to relate. And in the same way, when a person comes to faith in Christ, it is like being born into God's family. And there are many things that we're only going to learn over time as we, we experience them and as we learn about them. But we are members, we are told, from the beginning of our spiritual life of a new family, the people of God. And this passage tells us two things about that. One is negative, I guess you'd say, and one is positive. It shows on one hand what doesn't characterize this new family, and on the other hand, it tells us what does characterize this family that we are a part of. Now, families, human families, often fit together in a way that is very identifiable. This isn't always true, but um, Paul and Katie have three children, If you didn't know their three children and they brought Jack to you, the oldest, he's four years old, and they said, take Jack and go in that room with 20 toddlers and find his two sisters, no one would have to tell you who his two sisters are because they all look alike. I mean, you can tell they came from the same parents, and I know that's not always true. And particularly as children get older, they become more distinguished, but often families are very much alike. And, and blood relationship, it means that families are identified in certain ways, but it's more than simply the fact that they share a common heritage or genetic code. It's the fact that from earliest childhood, they're raised in the same environment. So they have the same experiences. They experience the same parenting, the same culture. They're brought up from the beginning of life in the same home. And what Jesus says is that's not now going to be characteristic of the family that he is creating. It it is not going to be characterized by a common background, 
by common experiences, by common ways of thinking and living. It's not based on blood relationship or kinship. Now, here's what all of that means. The idea of people being the people of God is found in the Old Testament. Very early it comes out. And that phrase, people of God, means people belonging to God, or it might mean people created by God or formed by God to be together. It's rooted in the beginning of the Bible, especially it comes out when God called a man in Genesis 12 whose name was Abraham. And God gave to Abraham specific promises, and he said that these promises were not just for Abraham, they were for Abraham and all of his physical descendants. And so as time went on, Abraham had only one son, and his son had two sons, but one of them departed, and he only had one who was the son of promise. But that third child had 12 sons. And that third child, Jacob, was a grandson, we'd say, of Abraham. His name was Jacob, was renamed Israel, and his 12 sons became called the sons of Israel. Literally, they were the sons of Israel. And in keeping with what God had said to Abraham, that he would have many descendants, these 12 sons formed large families, and they developed over a period of many hundreds of years into 12 tribes made up of clans. They were huge, and they forgot most of why they were together, but they knew they had a common ethnic heritage, a common language. They, they knew that far back they were united in some way, and the book of Genesis was written in part to tell them exactly what their relationship was about, where it came from, their, the promises given to Abraham and how they belonged to them. But in the Old Testament as it unfolds, what I'm saying is, the people of God were a distinct ethnic group. Much later, after they were exiled in 500 BC, they became called Jewish people. But that was much later. They were just the descendants of Abraham before that. And they were, as God himself designed, a family a distinct ethnic group. They were characterized by a common language, culture, a common religion, and eventually they even had a national identity and they were given a place to live in uh, Palestine. Now, it was always possible, and the Old Testament illustrates it, that someone could become a part of that group of people. They didn't have to be a descendant of Abraham to become a part of it, so we read a few occasions like, Uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who identified himself with the people of God. Or later, uh, Rahab, a Canaanite woman, who identified herself with the people of God and was accepted into them. And later than that, Ruth, a Moabite woman, who identified herself with the people of God and was accepted. In fact, those last two, Ruth and Rahab, became uh, ancestors of Jesus himself So it was very possible for a person from a different ethnic identity, background, religion, whatever, to become a part of the people of God. But the only way you could do that was by identifying yourself with that particular ethnic group. You had to become a part of the descendants of Abraham, either by birth or by choice, and then keeping the law and the covenant that was given to them, 
if you wanted to be a part of the people of God. And it's important to understand something that comes out of that. This is the whole story of the Old Testament. The descendants of Abraham became this vast people. But what happened over time is not all of them, even though they belonged to the people, not all of them belonged to God. Not every person in that covenant nation had faith. They didn't share the faith that Abraham had. Some of them were just nominal in their beliefs, like they accepted it, this is my culture, and, and so forth. If I find something better, religion, religion or something like that, I'll take that if that comes along or some such thing. Many were nominal, and there were some who actually were living in opposition to it. But if they were descendants of Abraham, if they identified themselves with the people, they were all part of the nation. Some had heartfelt faith and obedience, but not everyone responded that way. And that's the situation into which Jesus was born. Jesus himself was a physical descendant of Abraham. We know his genealogy, those who went before him, that Ruth and Rahab were a part of that. And he was born into this people. He experienced the same rituals and worship. He was circumcised the eighth day, just like the male children were. He kept the Passover. He learned the law, and he sought to keep it. He was a descendant of Abraham, and he was part of the people of God. And that's the context in which his mother and his brothers come to see him. And the ties of kinship are very powerful. This is something hard for us to understand in America because we don't experience that. Most of us don't think much about our our background. We may not even know what part of the world our ancestors came from. But we identify ourselves as Americans, and we know that America is a melting pot. But if you've traveled in places, you will find out that not everyone thinks that way. It's kind of my joke with the workers that I minister with and to in Albania, these Albanian people, that Albanians are very faithful with one qualification. Like if you say, will you meet me for dinner tomorrow at 5 o'clock, you can count on them being there, except unless something happens, that means unless a relative shows up. And relative means my father, my mother, my brothers or sisters, and my cousins to the third degree. If anyone shows up, the, the ties of kinship are so strong that hospitality trumps everything. They are responsible to be there, take care of their friend or relative. And by the way, if you're married, it's not just on your side, it's on your wife's side. And that's why you can set appointments that nobody shows up at. And, and when they see you, they don't feel anything bad because, after all, you're not a relative, That's the way much of the world thinks, to be honest. There are these ties of kinship that are very powerful. And for Jesus, that would have been the case. He was part of an ethnic group in which those ties were so strong that if his mother, particularly, and his brothers showed up, he was responsible to drop everything that he was doing and pay attention to them. But instead, we find this rather amazing word from Jesus. He says, who are my mother and my brothers. It's really those who do the will of God as he looks around at those sitting on the ground around him. So Jesus came to make a big change, and the big change is what we call the new covenant. Everything I've described so far from the Old Testament is the old covenant, the way God designed it. He designed it to be primarily made up of an ethnic group. Others could join it non 
Jews could be a part of it, but they had to be a part of it by identifying with the group, with the covenants, with the promises. And Jesus, when he brought the new covenant, is saying in this passage, there's a big change involved in this, that no longer are the people of God going to be made up of the physical descendants of Abraham primarily. In fact, what the New Testament says is that it is those who are of faith, those who believe the gospel, who are the descendants of Abraham. That it's those who share Abraham's faith in a dead, raising God. That's what matters. So that means that the people of God now, now that Jesus has come, we are not an ethnic group. We are not a nation. We don't have a common language, a set of cults, customs, and cultures, though I suppose in any local church you would find most of those things. But we don't live in one geographical location. We're scattered throughout the earth in all the different places. We're not like Israel in the Old Testament, as God designed it, to be an ethnic group in a specific place to draw the nations in. We are now a group of people who are supranational. We're above the nations. We're separate from culture, separate from uh, uh, ethnic groups and that kind of thing. And that's the radical change of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The Old Testament to the New Testament. As I said, people who weren't from the Jewish race could always become part of the people of God, but they had to do it by identifying themselves with that ethnic group. And now what Jesus says is under the New Covenant, it's going to be different. Now God is going to accept people who are from that ethnic group, the physical descendants of Abraham, and he's going to accept people who are not from that ethnic group, and he's going to accept them on the same basis, and the same basis is faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to bring them together, Jews and Gentiles, into one body. They're accepted in Jesus as the one who died for their sins. They're not accepted on the basis of any kind of ethnic heritage, background, religion in their background, or anything like that. And that's why Jesus says, and this passage illustrates, that the gospel cuts through even the closest of ties. It cuts through blood relationships, and it distinguishes between people. You know, this passage illustrates that. If you have a Bible open, I just want you to note, earlier in the chapter, in verse 20, We read verses 31 through 35. In verse 20, it says, Then he went home. That means to Peter's home in Capernaum. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. Now, this is a rather amazing admission in the Bible. At this point in his ministry, Jesus' own family did not accept him and his mission, despite the fact that his mother had uh, heard marvelous things at the time of his birth that she didn't quite know what to do with, she at this point was not prepared for what he was doing and saying. And there are people who view the New Testament, you'll often hear this, they call it hero literature or something like that. It's the idea, you would get this in a secular university if you took a course in New Testament history, that, that the Gospels are just a story about a simple Palestinian peasant who um, was exalted in the eyes of his followers because they loved him so much. After he died, what they did is they built this great religion on him and they made him say and do all kinds of things that he didn't really do. 
or say. And, and that's all what we have in the Gospels, that the Gospels are kind of a, a development that built up of all these different ideas they put on Jesus. So you have this thing called the Jesus Seminar. Have you ever heard of that, the Jesus Seminar? It's often quoted in Time magazine and such. And these guys, they'll tell you what things in the New Testament Jesus said and what he didn't say. And, and they'll, it, it's undoubtedly something like this. Jesus didn't claim to be God, even though he did in the Gospel of John. He didn't claim to be God in the flesh. We know he could, didn't say that because he couldn't have said that. A Palestinian peasant in the first century couldn't say that. Well, that, that's the, like the most circular reasoning you can imagine. He didn't say it because he couldn't say it. it. It doesn't tell you what he actually said, but that's what they do with it. And if you're writing hero literature and it's carefully edited to make sure that your person comes off as being a great hero, you are not going to include the fact that his own family came and said he's out of his mind. You wouldn't put that in there. It's one of the marks of authenticity in the New Testament that tells us we are reading a genuine record of a person that is going to include things that at least right when you first read it is going to make you think, that doesn't sound right. His own family didn't accept him. Now, I, I want you to note that we know that it's not True that I mean, we know that it's true they didn't accept him, but we know that's not the end of the story because the rest of the New Testament fills that out. We know that one of his brothers, James, became the leading elder of the mother church in Jerusalem for many, many years and wrote the book of James. We know that another brother of his, Jude, wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament, was also an early Christian leader. So, I mean, his family later came to accept him, but right at this point they didn't. And Jesus is saying in that context in which his family thought that he was out of his mind, he's saying, my true family is not represented by those people. Even though the ties of blood are incredibly close, and even though I have great responsibilities to them, it is those who do the will of God, who accept me and my message, who are my true brothers and sisters. There's another saying in the Gospels that illustrates the same thing. It's in... Matthew chapter 10, and, and Jesus says this. You, you might have heard or read this saying, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own, old, of his own household. In other words, the gospel is going to cut right through families. It's going to divide people and create tension where there was no tension before. Now, we need to be careful with that, that saying of Jesus because it, it could be the kind of thing a cult leader would say, right? <laughs> like, wouldn't you, you see Jim Jones or David Koresh or the leader of Scientology, you know? You could just see them saying, we're your new family, Forget those people that were a part of your life before. You don't want to have anything to do with them. That's going to only harm you. We're your new family. And you could read Jesus' words and think that's what he's saying. But we know that's not what Jesus meant. He didn't mean that for a couple of reasons. One is that he didn't break off relationship with his own family. Despite this saying, we know that he had relationship with the members of his family. And we also know that his brothers became leaders in the early church and the Christian movement. So it's not the end of the story to, for him to say this, but he's saying that, that kinship is not the only thing that will tie people together. 
He doesn't say that that doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't say relatives should be shunned or ignored or something like that. He simply points out that now that he is bringing the gospel, the message of free forgiveness in him, there's going to be a change in where the lines are drawn. Obviously, lines have always been drawn. But where they are drawn is not going to be culture, kinship, language, heritage. It's going to be drawn based on spiritual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that means in some families, the lines are going to be drawn in a way that cuts right through the family. And some of us know what that means. Now, he doesn't say this will always happen. Every family will be divided. And that's why we have, and I've seen happen before, people come to faith in Christ where their whole family responds. And they become a part of it. It's a great thing to see. Families now united, not just by kinship, but united spiritually with each other. But many of us know that that's not always the case. We know what it is not to share a common faith in Christ with all the members of our family. And what Jesus means is that the gospel is going to redraw the lines. There have always been lines, but they're usually based on language and culture and so forth, but now they're going to be based on the common possession of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who imparts to people this new quality of life, and it is the possession of the Spirit that unites two people to each other in the family of God who may have no ethnic connection or racial connection or national connection of any kind. It's the sharing of life the life of God, by possessing the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is identified in the life of a person as they begin to do the will of God, first by trusting in Christ, and then as that is shown in a life of obedience to God. So Jesus is saying blood is thicker than water, but there's something thicker than blood, and that is the Spirit. He creates a tie that's closer than any physical or legal ties could could bind us to each other. He makes us children of God now, and that makes us brothers and sisters with each other, and he puts us into a family. And it's not just a family that will rear us for 20 years or so to maturity. It's a family in which we will be forever. And in this life, it's a family that goes on and rears us towards maturity in Christ. And I guess that means two things, a negative and a positive. The positive first is it means we're given a family that is the ongoing experience of what family is meant to be, and that's what a church represents. It represents a family. We sometimes call it the church family. It's a local expression of the fact that we have brothers and sisters all over the world meeting in all kinds of different places, but we are one local expression here. It means that in this family relationship, we're all being parented by one father, and we are brothers and sisters with each other. And often what I find is that People who are aware that their own family that they grew up in, regardless of how good it was, had some failings, some weaknesses, which most people should acknowledge, but people who are very aware of that, what we find in the church is we find an experience of family that is fulfilling and ongoing. That's what the church is meant to provide for us. Um, we, We continue to grow and develop and and things that we didn't learn that we needed to in childhood. We, we learn or relearn a lot of times as we interact with each other in small groups and in personal relationships and, and that kind of thing. 
Now, the fact is, it's true for every person, even those brought up in the best of families, because even the best of families have weaknesses. And one weakness of even the best of families is that your time in the family as a child ends. That's how life works. You move on and create your own family. And when we do that, we are, it can be, particularly in America, kind of left without family because people move far away and we don't live you know, near our relatives as much as used to happen. But uh, that's the place where we are able to learn and to grow. And among the people of God, we can find acceptance and love and nurture and models of maturity and leadership and, and even at times the correction that we need in order to move in the direction that we should. And, and do you find that in the church? That's what a church is meant to do. It's what it's meant to be. It's the, the test of the presence of the Spirit at work in people's lives is finding these kinds of connections in which over time our lives are shaped and molded. But I suppose on the other side, our family connection will also mean that it's a place of messy relationships because that's how families work. Particularly in a family where we do not have a common background, it means that when we come into this family, we bring all kinds of different ideas of temperament and ideas about spiritual things and, and different ideas about what is right and wrong in life. And the family's meant to be the place where we work those things out and God, in the mysterious way of working through sometimes the friction between people that occurs, uh, helps us to grow and learn together. And that's what God gives to us in Christ. He gives us a new family. And this table is a reminder of that. It's a reminder that we are one family in Christ. And so it's designed for those who belong to Christ to come and to be spiritually nourished by Christ at the family table. And the table reminds us, I guess, that it is true blood is thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would... Use it in our hearts and lives. Help us to seek to live out that which you have said is true for us, the kind of relationships in which we experience your presence. And we find ourselves um, experiencing peace in relationships, and we find ourselves experiencing and showing mercy to others, and we find ourselves growing up in Christ. That's what we long to do, and that's the kind of church we long to be, and we give you this in Jesus' name. Amen.